welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where you can learn to avoid the downs and savor the ups. Here, 40-year veteran attorney Paul Samico will entertain you and help you understand the law in areas we might all face. Brushes with the police? Oh boy. Family disputes? Oh no. An injury and accident situations? Ouch. And now, here's Paul. Hello there, and welcome, welcome to the Legal Merry-Go-Round, where I always want you to remember to avoid the downs and savor the ups. I am your host, Paul Samico, attorney in Maryland and Virginia, practicing for 40 years, and I will share with you that I still am practicing. One of these days, I hope to get it right. I don't know everything, and anybody who tells me they do... Man, I tell you, I just turn around and walk away. Today on Marital Mondays, I have a subject which is so touchy, so sensitive, so fraught with different opinions and emotions that I actually had to make a decision whether to bring this topic to this podcast show or not. So as you listen to me for the next 30 minutes or so, I truly hope that in no way will I offend you. I want to give you the law and some examples in the matter concerning embryos. What happens when parents who created what then become frozen embryos go to war with each other over whether or not those embryos should be used to create a life or to destroy them? And already, I understand that what I just said might offend some because some might believe that the embryo is already a life. I take no position on that for this purpose, only to bring you what the law is. So I want to get right into it. I'm going to talk about several cases here in this show today, and I want you to try to listen to the objectives of this. Yes, yes, the objective of all of this, so that if if this something, if this is something that you ultimately have to deal with. I, I, I know how, how difficult this must be. Um, and, and maybe, just maybe, what I'm going to share with you in this show will be of some help and some guidance. Mandy and Drake Rooks, these two folks in Colorado got married in 2002, and they employed IVF, uh, in vitro fertilization, using Mandy's eggs and Drake's sperm to have three children, wonderful little kids. When they decided to divorce 12 years later, six of the embryos created by that process remained frozen in a Denver clinic. Drake did not want more children and wanted the embryos destroyed. Mandy wanted them preserved, hoping for a larger family and believing that the embryos were her only chance at future pregnancy. The contract they signed, however, when they created the embryos, left it up to the courts to decide who should get the embryos if the marriage dissolved. Now, the Rooks had to take their dispute to the courts because the contract uh, with the fraternity clinic did not specify what would happen to the embryos if they got a divorce. According to Drake's attorney, he feels that he should not be forced to have other children 
by getting these pre-embryos and implanting them. So far, at this point, the court's decisions at the trial and the appellate levels agreed and awarded the eggs to him, ruling that his interest in not producing additional offspring prevailed over Mandy's interest in having a fourth child. I'm going to share at the uh, conclusion, um, when I get back to the, the, the conclusion of the show in the second half, what happened. The next case I want to talk about, Jacob and his girlfriend Carla entered into an agreement to undergo uh, the IVF uh, process for the purpose of creating embryos. Carla had been diagnosed with lymphoma and was expecting to suffer ovarian failure and infertility as a result of her chemotherapy treatment. During IVF, Jacob and Carla agreed to fertilize all of the eggs that were retrieved. The couple consulted a lawyer who drafted a co-parenting agreement, indicating that Jacob acknowledges and agrees that Carla is likely to be unable to create new healthy embryos subsequent to the chemotherapy regimen she will undergo. And Jacob specifically agrees that Carla should have the opportunity to use such embryos to have a child. But the couple never signed it. Three embryos were generated and survived to viability. Carla then underwent chemotherapy that unfortunately rendered her infertile. Shortly after that, they broke up. They disagreed as to the disposition of the embryos. Jacob sued to stop Carla from using them, and she counterclaimed for access to them. So here we have the the issues that come down to court decisions ultimately. First, a contract signed at the time, or second, a change of mind later on based on any number of reasons. Which is more compelling? These are very, very difficult decisions. When I come back from the break, I'm going to go into the results and share some information with all of you about the law in this very, very sensitive and very important area of human reproduction. Yes, strike up the band. Hey, listen, I promise I'm going to get to the break in just a moment, but I had to share this with you. So this guy who is at a school in San Diego, California, sues the school district, the high school where he was a member of the band and the band director for what he says is intentional and negligent infliction of emotional distress. So this 16-year-old kid, uh, a freshman and a baritone player at the school, uh, claims that the uh, coach or the band director, I should say, shook him and yelled at him and yells, I ought to wring your neck for wearing orange socks instead of the regulation white socks to perform at the Tournament of Roses parade. So the kid quits the band following the incident and files a lawsuit for $150,000. Okay, so as unbelievable as that is, he goes to trial with this and a jury gives him twenty-five. dollars 
$1,000. Only in America. The school district had no comment on whether the uh, band leader uh, was disciplined. And now to the break. Okay, it's break time here on the merry-go-round. We want to give you value. So, do you need an attorney for an injury case or a criminal matter or something involving family law? Mr. Samico has the answer for you. Go to our podcast website, www.thelegalmerrygoround.com. Again, that's thelegalmerrygoround.com and click on the referrals tab. Then, either fill out the form or call the telephone number where you can leave a detailed message that Mr. Samico will pick up, and you'll get a response with a referral to an excellent attorney in your area within eight business hours. And the referral is free, no charge to you for this referral. So again, if you're looking for a lawyer that meets the highest standards, Paul is going to hook you up. And every attorney he refers to meets the highest standards, and Paul has checked them out for you. If you like what you're hearing from him during these shows, you know he's going to take care of you. So go to thelegalmerrygoround.com. And now, back to the show. Okay, then, I hope that you enjoyed the break. Uh, Enjoy the little story right before the break. And I hope that you're ready for some real important stuff about the disposition of embryos when couples who create them then later disagree. I talked about the Drakes, their frozen embryos sitting in a Colorado clinic with no agreement on what to do with those embryos if they ultimately divorced. A lawsuit followed and an appeal. The district court and the Colorado Court of Appeals awarded the embryo to Drake. Uh, Mandy appealed both of those decisions. So the Colorado Supreme Court had to weigh in. And the ruling, interestingly enough, did not resolve the former couple's disagreement, but the decision did create new guidelines on how such cases should be decided if divorcing spouses can't come to an agreement. So listen up, boys and girls, because this is really instructive. It's very helpful. The court said that absent an agreement the court should seek to balance the parties' respective interests when awarding the pre-embryos. The court found the following factors should be considered by the court when balancing the parties' respective interests, including 1. The intended use of a party seeking to preserve disputed pre-embryos. 2 demonstrated physical ability or inability of a party seeking to implant disputed pre-embryos to have biological children through other means, parties' original reasons for pursuing IVF, could they adopt as one of the potential other means. Three, the hardship for a person seeking to avoid 
becoming a genetic parent to an embryo should it be implanted and carried to full term, including emotional, financial, or logistical considerations. Very important, very important considerations, I believe. Four, either spouses demonstrated bad faith or attempt to use these pre-embryos as unfair leverage in divorce proceedings. So those four things, I think, are a very good guideline. But here, listen up. This is even better. The court found that other factors may be relevant on a case-by-case basis. It held that the following factors should not be considered by a court, including one, whether the party seeking to become a genetic parent using the pre-embryos can afford another child. So money's got nothing to do with this. Two, the sheer number of a party's existing children. If you have zero children and this is your only hope, or if you have five children, nothing to do with whether or not this decision should be made. Finally, three, whether a spouse seeking to use the pre-embryos to become a genetic parent could instead adopt a child or otherwise parent non-biological children. Now, that almost conflicts with one of the things that the court said should be considered. Uh, again, courts don't always have the clearest of, of instructions when they make rulings in cases, but I think it is clear that all of these things have to be considered one way or another. Uh, the court, I think, is a little bit talking out of both sides of its mouth as to whether or not there is the ability to adopt uh, or otherwise parent non-biological children nonetheless, case-by-case basis. It clearly is a balancing test. People who are planning their reproductive futures need to make sure the facility where they are freezing embryos has a clear, valid agreement to be signed, and if it's not what the parties want, they need to insert that into the agreement, specifying who may use the pre-embryos upon divorce to avoid getting into this exact type of situation. In the case Uh, involving the Denver people, Colorado law states that a person who donates an egg or sperm can opt out of legal parenthood of a child born of that assisted reproductive process in the case of divorce. However, the state does not specify what should be done with remaining embryos. So that's what we're talking about here today. The case, the other case that I talked about The appellate court uh, of Illinois, which was where this was decided by the unmarried couple, um, ultimately held that such disputes should be settled by, one, honoring any advance agreement entered into by the parties, and two, weighing the parties' relative interests in using or not using the embryos in the event that there is no such agreement. So, After the case went back to the trial court to apply those tests, the appellate court confirmed the trial court's judgment by holding that the couple had entered into a valid oral agreement, even though they never signed it, which allowed Carla to use the embryos, and that even if no such agreement existed, the balancing of interest test would produce the same result because the pre-embryos represented Carla's last and only opportunity 
to have a biological child with her own eggs. Now, I didn't talk about a third case because I felt like I'd just give you the short fast and, and what happened with this one, but it's also very interesting. In 2015, California saw its first embryo dispute. In the case, the wife sought custody of the frozen embryos post-divorce, arguing that the embryos were her last chance at having children. Her husband was opposed to the use of these embryos. It was ultimately decided that the fertility clinic's consent and agreement form signed by the parties was an enforceable contract under California law. As a result, the wife could not use the frozen embryos after the divorce, as it would be in breach of their agreement with the fraternity with the fertility clinic. Folks throughout the United States, courts have divided on what to do in these cases, and they vary along several lines. The first, if there was an agreement, whether the document provided what will be called dispositional instructions or what to do, and whether the document was part of informed consent or separate from it. So oftentimes you could imagine a bullying and uh, of one or the other one by the other party with the issue at, at hand. It has to be an informed consent document. That is, everybody agrees to it up front and, and does so clearly uh, with all opportunity to fully investigate and make up their minds what they want to do before they sign. The second, whether the court regarded the document as being legally binding, and that's kind of really part of the first. If there was no conformed consent, a court can render such a contract invalid. And finally, whether the court treated the agreement as enforceable. So again, all part and parcel, but you know, very much involved in is there a contract or not. The cases also vary along uh, three general approaches taken to these types of cases. Whether there is a contemporaneous mutual consent, no matter what the parties agreed to earlier. So we signed a contract saying X, Y, and Z, but now one of us or both of us changed our minds and we've reached a new agreement. Well, if that's the case, okay, great, no problem. But the second idea is treating the disposition agreement as a contract to be enforced. So that's the rub. You know, if one changes their mind later, but we've got an existing contract which is otherwise valid, what do we do? And so the court says, courts, the court, courts have disagreed on some of these, but uh, more often than not, they're balancing, this is the number three idea, the approach, they balance the interests of the parties seeking to use the embryo against those of the parties seeking disposal of the embryos. And that's a pretty broad brush, isn't it? doesn't really give us any guidance or any help, but it just simply says that, you know, perhaps appropriately, we're going to take these things on a competing basis. Uh, uh, competing? No, a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes I use the wrong words, but I try and correct myself so that I don't confuse anybody out there. Yeah, you in the back, I see you uh, with your face all scrunched up trying to figure out what I'm just saying. I hope I made that clear by changing the word. Not competing, uh, but case by case. I do want to use the word competing now because there are generally two things that are going on here, and I've touched on them both. But I, I want to dive a bit deeper because this is real important stuff, at least in my mind. The first is a rule 
that an embryo agreement should ordinarily be binding even if one party later changes his or her mind. This is likely to be a very controversial type of thing. Legal scholars have been debating the, debating the point at issue for at least the last two or three decades. The view acknowledges uh, and recognizes the importance of treating contracts as binding in order to allow for future planning, to invite reliance and investment, and to protect the interests of parties uh, whose preferences have not changed, including individuals who have religious objections to the destruction of embryos. The opposite view, a second view, suggests that at the time of contracting, individuals can't possibly anticipate their future desires because of the difficulty in predicting the chance of divorce or the strength of their emotional attachment to the embryos. And this is called sometimes a changed self argument. This argument uses the contemporaneous mutual consent approach, which requires that both parties consent contemporaneously at the same time before the embryos can be used or destroyed. This approach honors the current views of the parties, but in fact it puts in place a veto rule, if you will, that can't be overridden. No use of the embryos by either party, despite what, what might have been agreed to previously, if one party vetoes it now. The veto rule, some have said, disregards the basic rule of contract law for these cases. Such a veto might be justified if we were to decide that it better captures what parties want now as compared to their agreed-upon feelings early on, and that non-use, indefinite syro-preservation or destruction of embryos is the best outcome from a societal perspective when parties can't reach an agreement. I know this gets deep. Recognition that embryo disposition agreements should not impose legal parenthood obligations on the objecting party is a major concern. Most involved in the dispute recognize that a party who now objects to the use of the embryos should be made a legal parent against his or her will. Such an approach clearly would have an undesirable effect of making a person who divorced a former spouse and objected to reproducing with that person through embryo implantation the legal parent of any child that results. This might seem a poor result for either the objecting spouse or any child created. States have started following treatment of sperm donors in the more modern versions of something called the Uniform Parentage Act. Absolve the objecting generic parent of legal parentage obligations and rights if that person states in writing that he or she does not want to be the legal parent of the resulting child. An individual who chooses not to object to legal parenthood retains the same status of legal parenthood that he or she would have had if the reproduction had occurred before the divorce. You got all that? I know it's a handful. I'm going to continue just a bit more before I conclude here. Some jurisdictions have ruled in the wife's favor where it was successfully argued that the embryos are the woman's only remaining chance at having a family. Uh, 
there is currently no United States federal law governing what's to be done with viable embryos in the event of a couple's divorce or separation. As a result, again, these cases are determined by individual states who are using all measure of different legislation and judicial approaches to make their decision. This is an area of law that continues to evolve, and parties, in my opinion, should absolutely seek the assistance of an informed family law attorney early on when faced with embryo custody questions in case of a separation or divorce. Moreover, they should absolutely speak to a family law attorney before they make the donation to the fraternity, the fraternal, I'm going to say this word right, to the fertility clinic. Now, because I like to entertain on some level, uh, I'm going to conclude with one more story. Uh, depending upon your level of keeping up with the world of celebrities, you may recall a contentious case involving Sofia Vergara. If you don't know who she is, that's okay. You can look her up, a beautiful woman who, before she was married to uh, Joe Mangianello, uh, was in a relationship with a guy by the name of Nick Loeb. During their time together, Sophia and Nick considered having a child together via surrogacy. So her eggs were fertilized with his sperm and the embryos were frozen and placed in a facility in Louisiana. They broke up and Nick wanted custody of the embryos because he claimed Sophia wanted them destroyed. She denied it, saying that they each signed the agreement under which no unilateral action for the embryos could be taken. Loeb wanted to implant them in another woman and then raise those children as his own. Vergara wasn't having it. Ultimately, a federal judge granted her motion to affirm the contract they originally signed. It stated both parties must agree before the embryos could be brought to life. Folks, again, a very, very touchy, very sensitive question that the law enters into. And I then come back to the name of my podcast here, The Legal Merry-Go-Round, which has all of the component parts in the stories today, the ups and the downs, avoid the downs and savor the ups. In cases like these, there is absolutely no substitution for planning, exactness, looking at the future, contemplating all the potential things that could happen, and writing them down so that if and when there is an issue, uh, it's clear. And if this sounds like I am advocating for the contract, I am. And I also then, out of the other side of my mouth, say that, well, then, at the time that something changes and both parties agree, then a subsequent agreement is the way things should go. I look forward to having your ear on Wednesday for the next edition of The Legal Merry-Go-Round. Wrongdoer Wednesdays, we're going to have some real interesting stuff for you coming up in two more days. Take a nice afternoon, evening, go out with your friend, have a glass of wine, don't drink and drive. Bless you. Talk to you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Legal Merry-Go-Round. We hope you enjoyed our show. 
Tune in next time to get a better understanding of real-life legal situations. Thank you.